welcome to Activating Sustainability, the Anthesis podcast. I'm your host, Chris Peterson. Today, we're really excited to be joined by a number of colleagues to really dig into the meetings and events happening at COP27 and get some really quick reactions to what they're seeing, what they're hearing, and what myself and all of us as listeners need to kind of know has happened and what are those implications for us going forward. So please join me in welcoming to the podcast, Gray McGuire, Carbon Project Manager with Climate Neutral Group based out of South Africa. Joos Kozinsen, uh, Carbon Market Specialist with the Climate Neutral Group out of the Netherlands. And Bianca Nijhoff, Director of Nature and Water with Anthesis Group, uh, currently based in Barcelona, but often based out of the Netherlands as well. So thank you all very much for joining. Really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you. Mm, indeed. Yeah, good to see you all. Well, wonderful. Great. I know you are just back from attending COP and some of the early meetings and kind of initial week of it. And would love to hear kind of what was that experience like? What are you seeing? What was kind of the feel of the event? As I know you've been to a number of these. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't quite have the same uh, level of experience as some of my other colleagues in the, in this uh, department, but uh, it was my first COP in, uh, I think, probably eight years. So, yeah, it was definitely a bit of getting used to the, the frenetic nature of the COP again. They, they're always very fast paced. There's always so many different things going on at any given moment in time. There's, you know, sort of five, six meetings busy happening that you want to be able to participate in. And it really is, you know, it's quite tricky in order to be able to, you know, get to that point of prioritization where you really can just select the key gems that you're wanting to be able to get to. It was definitely made harder by the fact that there were quite a lot of uh, organizational logistical challenges, a lot of the sort of guidance uh, support stuff that was supposed to be in place, like the, you know, the app that uh, one was supposed to use that was put there by the organizers didn't work. Uh, there were obviously quite a lot of uh, other challenges that some of the listeners on the podcast might have read about in the media around access to food and water, which didn't help. Uh, and then, you know, just uh, also just some audible uh, challenges as well. But once we started to get past that, uh, yeah, things really started to come together. Uh, I think, as with many cops, a bit of a bumpy start in the beginning. Quite a few blockages around key pieces of text. So quite a lot of the the text was still left being left in in brackets, which means it's uh, still up for negotiation. Uh, from our side of things, I mean, I was very focused on Article Six, which is the carbon markets component of uh, the Paris Agreement. Uh, so I was I was following that and. Yes, certainly while there was some progress that was being made, it was so uh, quite a few of the, the key sticking points kind of remained in place right up until when I left. So I'm keeping my eye on what is happening there during the remainder of this week, uh, and hopefully we can get some resolution there. But yeah, just in terms of the overall feeling of the COP, I think one of the things that was a bit of a concern was that, you know, with Glasgow, there was, uh, even though I wasn't there, I was obviously following that very closely. And there was this very strong sentiment around keep 1.5 alive, uh, whereas now all of a sudden there's this new language which has started to creep in around every fraction of a degree counts. You know, really what, what they're saying there is, you know, every fraction of a degree below two degrees centigrade counts. And yes, that's undoubtedly uh, correct. However, the reality is, is that at 1.5, you know, beyond 1.5 degrees uh, of warming, then what we find is that four of five key global tipping points or climate tipping points move from being possible to, to likely. Uh, and, you know, two of those are essentially the complete disintegration of the Greenland ice sheet is the one. 
and then the other one is the West Arctic ice sheet. And, and if that happens, that, that could literally stop the, the thermoheating cycle of the ocean, which is essentially what drives the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation system. That's the weather regulating system that keeps essentially Europe from becoming an ice block and keeps uh, much of Latin America and also Central Africa that keeps that moist. So that could have really, really negative impacts. And then the other thing that could also potentially happen there, the other tipping point, is that the northern permafrost uh, can start to thaw. And if that were to happen, then, you know, that could end up in a situation we have uncontrollable greenhouse gas emissions. So we really do need to uh, keep our eye on that. Another rosy picture around it. But, and I know we're going to get into those key themes, right? And what are the things we really need to be focusing in on? I guess maybe just curious to hear, I know Yos, Bianca, you've been involved in a number of these cops as well. You know, and Gray, I think your perspective, did this feel different or did this feel similar? Like, does it feel like people are kind of giving up on 1.5? Does it feel like people are becoming more pragmatic around that? You know, like what is, what is your view of that just general experience? One of the things that, you know, is quite alarming for me was that uh, Washington and the EU issued a joint declaration alongside Japan, Canada, Norway, Singapore, and Britain, which is essentially pledging action to build on an international deal that was launched at, at Glasgow last year to cut economy-wide emissions by about 30% in, a, in about 130 countries around the world. However, the reality is, is that if we intend to make that 1.5 degree centigrade targets, and that's by 2030, we need to cut emissions by 45%. So we're you know 15% short on that. So, you know, what is my feeling around that? My feeling is that we really need to ramp up a lot of the ambition there. And it does definitely feel that there's a lot of blaming of the, you know, the, the inflation issues and the energy crisis issues that are happening as a result of Ukraine uh, on the lack of ambition in that regard. Mm. Yeah. And Joss and Bianca, I know you've been watching this from afar, uh, but curious to hear kind of what this is feeling like for you. Yeah, Chris, indeed, it is a difficult year this year. And it's also the first COP that I'm not visiting because I thought, hey, we have now the carbon market rules. Now we can implement it. But it's a very difficult time. And everybody is now waiting for how to close that gap towards the one and a half degrees. Uh, what's the higher targets we will announce? Because all governments decided in Glasgow, we'll meet each other every year and we will keep on increasing, increasing our target. The timing is not there yet. Although... There are many ambitions uh, announced again. Uh, of course, our clients will ask for that. Eh? What's happening? Will we meet the overall target or are we just messing up as a, as a company on ourselves? There are many announcements on renewable investments, on helping South Africa, Indonesia with energy transition, which is very important. There's some announcement on forestry working together and mangrove. And the EU is announcing to increase their target from 55 to 57%. So I think that's good that at least these small bits of action are there. It's not enough. And we will talk later about how to close that gap with bridging, bridging, bridging we can do. Methane, it's a very good point you made. I expect there will be an announcement on methane. At the end of this week, last year, the government said we will have to reduce 30% of methane in 2030. And for CO2, that means more than 80% times the, the value with regard to global warming. So that's good, but I, I'm waiting for a concrete uh, announcement. Then also what companies also are looking for, what's happening with finance? We also see a big uh, yeah, finance gap. And it's difficult at this moment to do this. I guess we will see also companies having a, becoming a role there. For example, Kerry is asking the companies in the US to help finance energy transition, for example. 
so it's difficult to to get the finance gap closed and the decision today will be made that next year we will have to build this fund and the third bit is i would like to see what will happen on markets and i think what comes out of this cop clearly is there's an end to greenwashing if a company seeks to uh, do work on climate it should be a really absolute emission reduction target in 2050 2030 if you use compensation to get to zero use high quality offsets what we always do as uh, as anthesis group and then the last one is don't invest in new fossil fuels if you do those three things you can have your net zero target and use the carbon market the carbon market that was decided in glasgow last year is how countries can use the carbon market and to meet the global targets we are not there yet it's a lot of uh, tasks to do what are the national emissions how do you report and track emissions how do you prove you have reduced your emissions so that you can sell reductions to another country we're not there yet to help meet the country's target with the markets that's why we end up with an important role for the voluntary carbon market and that's what we are and our clients are using that's great and bianca kind of your experience with cop 27 and you know, i think we'll we'll definitely get into these themes and kind of dig into them a little bit further but at that high level are there some key takeaways for you yeah, the high level, and obviously I'm coming at it more from a nature and a, and a water angle. Um, and what I've seen uh, well, in Paris with the COP, um, nature was actually at the table. And, and what we saw happening last year in Glasgow, you saw nature organizations or the focus on nature becoming a much more much more apparent, actually. And this year, especially the nature-based solutions or natural climate solutions, there's different ways of how to, how to frame those. Um, they're really very quite prominent at, at, at the table. And I think nature provides solutions in two ways. It's from the climate adaptation perspective, like fighting the, the impacts of climate change, which we already see happening, and also from the climate mitigation uh, side of things. So nature-based solutions could contribute to around 30% of the global mitigation required by 2030, 2050 to achieve the goals as, as we have agreed upon. So um, yes, I'm very happy to see that nature as a solution is now really uh, be having a position at the table as well. You might even see that nature helps to bridge that last gap towards emissions uh, targets. And on top of that, nature-based solutions are also used for adaptation. Uh, they use more biodiversity. It stores carbon. So, yeah, that's the place to go to, to really meet the targets and to serve all other objectives we have. Well, the mitigation is actually from three aspects. It's about reducing, destroying nature but also implementing and improving on nature and creating creating more nature. But we can dive into that a bit deeper later, Chris. There's multiple examples and numbers actually to start that. No, there, there's a lot to dig in there. And I've been scrambling down notes as we've gone through of some of those highlights. And it sounds like maybe what would be helpful is just digging in on what are some of those key themes, right? For those of us like myself that are interested, but maybe haven't been as embedded as you all are in COP, what are some of those key things that kind of we need to know coming out of this, right? And maybe, Gray, starting with you, one of the things you mentioned is that kind of, you know, every fraction of a degree counts versus the 1.5. You were talking about some of those tipping points within that. Does it feel like that this will be the cop we look back on as like, oh, that's when we gave up on 1.5 or... So, no, I don't think that it is going to necessarily be the cop where we give up on 1.5. But I think that the changing in attitude is essentially now that there is a lot more placing our bets on technological solutions that don't yet exist. The level of focus around carbon capture and storage is definitely increased. 
So, uh, you know, and as Bianca is saying, you know, yes, definitely there is a huge amount of focus on nature-based solutions at COP. I mean, at least 40% of the, the side events that are busy taking place on the official UNFCCC agenda are in one way or another related to adaptation of nature-based solutions. However, at the same time, carbon capture and storage is also really starting to, to feature prominently there. And I think it probably is uh, the right time to be doing this. You know, if we look at uh, essentially what is going to be the outcome of the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., the level of essentially subsidization that is going towards direct air capture um, for carbon capture and storage is quite tremendous. I mean, it, it's more than doubling the price that companies who are engaged in carbon capture and storage will be able to get for a ton of carbon. It's now in an excess from direct air capture, it's in excess of $80 a ton. So there's some really, really good financial incentives in place that are particularly coming out of the US in order to be able to, to help that to really move forward. But that's a hell of a big gamble, future of humanity on technologies that don't, as of yet at this moment in time, exist. Yeah, that's a good point. There will be much more attention. That was also on this COP on, on carbon removals, eh? get CO2 out of the atmosphere because we need to improve our efficiency, reduce less energy, but you still need to get the CO2 out of the air or via nature-based solutions removals or direct air capture. A lot of attention. Also some caution. Eh? How long can we do it? Is it really permanent? How much does it cost? It has to be one of the options in the future anyway, and we have to start now but we still need to meet our current targets. So that creates a problem. On the one half degrees, there's also a United Nations overshooting committee working. They say, well, suppose we don't meet the emission target. We need then to do extra work to, uh, yeah, to cool the earth, to have more albedo activity, uh, more nature, uh, cool down. That's also part of the extra attention on methane. We need to do much more now. You know? We need to cool now. Therefore, it's also the overshoot committee. Because of political reasons, we may not bridge all those gaps, but we need to do something because, uh, yeah, some nations are suffering now. A special attention also got this COP agriculture and food because that's not only damaged the harvest, but we need to get it. And what you also saw, a lot more information on scope three, uh, upstream, downstream. And almost all of our clients have to do with the supply towards you, uh, downstream and upstream. It will be part slowly becoming of your impact zone. If you can have impact there, please do it. Ask your clients to be more efficient. Uh, ask your suppliers uh, and your customers to be more uh, efficient or more nature-based. So, yeah, we do our best to, to bridge all those gaps, but they all are more clear and on a radar. That would happen to this couple as well. Yeah, sorry, you're just on that point. I don't know if you saw, but there was a launch of a report from the UN's high-level expert group on net zero emissions commitments of non-state entities. So that is obviously, it's very heavily related to scope three emissions because, you know, the average level of scope three emissions relative to in-company emissions is about 5.5 to 1. And it's also, you know, the only types of offsets that you can use under science-based targets initiative are removal credits. So that's either nature-based solutions or carbon capture and storage. And really what they're trying to do there is, I'm sure that some of the listeners up to this podcast would have heard over recent months, there's been quite a big pushback from the financial sector around ESG and, and particularly, you know, companies essentially fudging their ESG reports for, for greenwashing purposes. And this high-level expert group is in place in order to be able to provide guidance to ensure credible, accountable, net-zero pledges going forward. I think that's going to be a really important thing. Yeah, and it certainly sounds like there's this solidification 
of practices, right? And and a little bit of this messiness feels like, oh, now that this is real, we need very rigid regulations, et cetera, around that. And maybe Bianca, just to kind of reach out to you on this, I know speaking beforehand, biodiversity certainly feels like one of those areas, right? Where it has been kind of on the agenda, but people are like, well, yeah, we need to do something, but don't know what that looks like. How has that looked like for you at this COP? Well, I think slowly, actually, not necessarily only during the COP, but also in the periods the past year before the COP, with all the wildfires, with all the droughts, with everything happening. If you see, if you have droughts in peatlands, they release methane. If you have wildfires, you obviously have carbon going into the air. And if you degrade nature, obviously less carbon capture. And even with the ocean heating up, a warmer ocean can capture less carbon. So there's all this, the different sinks which we have are slowly disappearing and climate change is actually negatively impacting that. So it's a double bad impact which we are having. So yeah, yeah in that sense, I'm, I'm really, really happy to see nature as a significant solution being at the table, providing that it can uh, capture one third of the carbon emissions which which we have. Plus, it's about 10 gigatons a year, which nature can capture if we stop degrading the ecosystems and, and actually restore degraded ecosystems. So 10 gigaton of CO2 per year, that's more than the emissions from the entire global transportation sector. That's a significant amount. Um, and apart from that, just while also adding on social values, um, like a lot of people with adaptation measures in, in place, there's like 65 billion US dollars in flood protection benefits. There's safeguarding 15 million people against flooding by nature-based solutions. And if you then can say that if you have those nature-based solutions as adaptation measure, they at the same time also capture carbon. So it's a mitigation measure as well. So for me, it's like a win-win-win situation. And I'm very happy that that's what we I would call a systems approach, that we're slowly taking that approach. Um, and that, for me, is also a segue into another important COP from my perspective, at least coming up beginning next month, where we will be talking uh, about nature and there's uh, striving for a similar global goal, which we have on climate for nature. And that will support our climate agenda definitely as well. Yeah, perfect. And maybe just pick up on one piece in there, Bianca. You know, you mentioned about the adaptation piece. And I know, Gray, you were commenting previously about that sense of what does this look like for developing countries, the kind of finance mechanisms around those transfers, et cetera, that seemed like a big focus in the early days of this COP? I'm curious kind of what your perspective on that is. Yeah, I mean, so just, you know, just prior to the COP, there was a meeting of the Global Center on Adaptation in, I think it was in, it was either Gabon or Ghana. I can't remember exactly where it was. So that was about a month ago. And the co-chair of the event uh, made an announcement during, I mean, this was just one of the outcomes of the research that they've been engaged on. This is all under the global goal on adaptation, uh, was that they were anticipating that 80% of the finance for adaptation needs to come from the private sector. Uh, the reality is, is that, I mean, I, I say this with a huge degree of fondness because I worked in government for four years myself. The state is not good at implementing adaptation programs. And frankly, you know, like, I mean, they're just not good at maintaining land assets generally. But, you know, like, this is one of the things where we really need to, to, to try and lean on private landowners and people who are utilizing land in order to be able to promote much more sustainable practices and, and approaches towards land management. It's, it's one of the reasons why Climate Neutral Group in South Africa is a part of the Sustainable Landscape Finance Coalition where we bring the, the carbon offset component into that broader structure of different adaptation techniques. 
But really, I mean, it's, I think that's just going to be such a key component is looking at how do we get the Article 6.2 mechanisms in place to be able to facilitate the flows of finance in ways that can be quantified and independently audited and that fly under a standard that don't have the same kinds of risks of, you know, fiscal black hole, like many of the adaptation projects in the past, the money goes into national fiscus and then uh, very little ends up actually being used on the ground. Yeah. What most people don't know is that why it's so important to have the carbon market and the repairs agreement is because at 5% of all the revenues, they go into the adaptation fund. And so that's very important also from that point to get it done and to get it in the, uh, in the, in the framework agreement which also could be a new angle to use also in the voluntary carbon market. Eh? There's also a push that why is the voluntary carbon market not uh, sharing part of the proceeds to adaptation, for example? Why is not the voluntary carbon market cancelling part of the reductions uh, for global mitigation? And it's something we need to assess ourselves indeed. Okay, we can use the voluntary carbon market, but maybe we should also make that more ambitious, use it for extra mitigation and maybe also adaptation. So some things to learn from ourselves. Thanks. Well, maybe just while we've got you on the hot seat, um, you mentioned about kind of that engagement of the market, the engagement of the private sector around that. And curious kind of how you're seeing that come out of this COP or how that's being addressed at COP. Yeah, uh, there were many companies uh, present, many oil uh, companies and gas companies that got a lot of uh, opposition. And you know that many uh, NGOs were asking, stop oil, So maybe I'm not in the hot spot, but companies are in hot hot seat, uh, more or less. Now, it's so difficult for companies to see what's happening uh, on the COP, what it means for them, because it's complex. It's a lot of agenda items. It needs to be balanced. It's very political. So uh, at the end of the day, it's about what will governments ask their companies to do so in the EU, increasing the target, and what do we help our clients with? Yeah, they want to uh, tackle climate change. They want to know what's the impact. How can we increase a better impact? So uh, a direct message from the COP is always very complicated. That's why this podcast is so important to get yeah, to convey that message. Thanks. Yeah, just a, a comment on that. This is more of an anecdote. Uh, so I, I saw the the CEO of Total coming. Uh, he came past the Aita stand where I was based for a little while. And he was being absolutely harangued by delegates. Uh, so, you know, this, uh, it's, they are really feeling the heat. What I'm hearing is maybe four of the big bucket kind of key themes from this COP so far have been the kind of 1.5 strain around that, the kind of markets and finance being a key piece and maybe solidifying those a little bit and going through the, the mud of getting that more clearly defined. Bianca, your comments around biodiversity and the systems piece really coming to the fore as a kind of key piece of how we can solve this going forward. And then that kind of focus in on adaptation, right? In terms of, we can't just avoid, right? We need to be moving forward. But does that feel like kind of, you know, for individuals like me, like the right four? There's one important thing that's been uh, left off of there and that is that developing nations are pushing hard on loss and damage. And, you know, it's, it's a very difficult conversation to have. I mean, like uh, the, the reality is, I mean, certainly in the South African context, which I find very ironic because South Africa is the 13th worst emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. But our, our Minister of uh, Environment here, uh, just before going to COP, was saying, you know, Africa is only responsible for 4% of historic greenhouse gas emissions. 
that might be so. But of that 4%, I can guarantee you that 3.8% came from South Africa. You know, so it's, it's a, yeah, a little bit of, uh, we'll take that with a pinch of salt. But the reality is, is that the countries that are getting hit the hardest by climate impacts are developing countries. And the issue around loss and damage, is, it's a fair one. You know, like there is a huge cost to developing countries in particular because they, they haven't been able to implement the same kinds of adaptation measures. I mean, if you look at what the Netherlands, what, what a third of the Netherlands would be underwater if you hadn't placed adaptation measures in place. It's actually close more than half or close to half at least. So, you know, so like, and that's, that's the situation that we're in, you know, is that developing countries are saying, hey, you know, we need to have our adaptation measures as well. And we don't have the funds for that. You're not even making, the developed world is not even making the $100 billion per annum commitment that they'd made at, uh, in Paris that, you know, that, that was supposed to be between 2020 and 2025. They're, they're not making that, that amount. And, you know, these countries are getting slammed. So they're sitting there and saying, okay, we want a loss and damage fund. However, my feeling around it, you know, when a third of the global economy is going into, or is expected to go into a recession next year, including the US, China and EU, Whew. it's a very hard time to be asking for a loss and damage fund. Yeah. And also, Chris, we were in a completely different time now. Huh? Years ago, when I started to work on climate change, I said, let's do mitigation to avoid that we have to pay for adaptation because that's for later. But now we need to adapt because uh, harvests and countries are threats already and mitigation plus suddenly loss and damage because damage is done already. And it, it feels very shameful huh, that we are uh, not performing enough so we need to do three things at the same time. It's not easy. Uh, therefore, I always try to find win-win-win solutions. Maybe we combine the things that we have a very good insurance that is also spending money in adaptation while you're doing mitigation. But then you may pay uh, three things in the one way. Well, but there's actually a nice bridge in there, as I just said, the statement about nature being adaptation and mitigation at the same time, actually. And if we start uh, recognizing that system, yeah, yeah. sorry, yeah, if we start recognizing that system approach, I think uh, I think that's a good way into at least um, I, I won't say it's the solution, but at least providing a little bit of the solution, one third maybe. Yeah, and I think we we need we need every little bit as we go. So I'm going to switch us to the the hard question, which is if all this felt easy. Um, which is as you look ahead for individuals like myself that have been kind of tracking COP on the side, but aren't as in deep into it as you all, what do you see as kind of the one thing, two things that you are looking ahead to, or that you really want kind of listeners to, to know about this COP or to really think about what they need to implement as a cause of this COP? I always start with know your impact, eh? the impact of a product, of a service, of a company on climate is always there. In that impact, look also for scope three, that is upstream and downstream. There is always nature somewhere there. So that gives you completely, when you know the impact, uh, you can reduce the impact. So that's what I'm saying. Knowing the impact is improving the impact. Yeah, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. I mean, uh, mine's a very aligned kind of sort of communication theme. And that, and that really is, people ask me a lot, you know, well, why would companies want to get these net zero commitments? Why would they want to buy offsets? And the thing I keep telling them is that the noose is tightening. I mean, and there are 36 different national uh, carbon pricing mechanisms globally. And I think there are 38 emissions trading schemes. 
you know, they're spreading out across the world. The EU is, is going to start with their carbon border adjustment mechanism at the start of next year. Uh, this is all part of, you know, this thing that Dios was talking about, this now 57% commitment towards uh, greenhouse gas emission reductions. The reality is, I mean, like if you look at groups like Climate Action 100 Plus, I mean, this is an, an enormous investor group and they are placing such high pressure on the companies that they invest in to take climate change seriously. And it's not because of the fact that they're wanting to do the right thing. They're doing it because of, of really the, the corporate exposure and the risk that is posed to companies as a result of things like carbon border adjustment mechanisms, internal carbon pricing, or not only obviously the transitional risks, but also the adaptation risks as well. So I would say, you know, as a take home message, companies can no longer afford to mess around in this domain. And things like this UN high-level expert panel on net zero emissions by non-state actors and the kinds of guidance that they're giving around setting meaningful targets is going to be more and more critical if you're wanting to secure investment going forward. Yeah, great. And then, Bianca, last word to you. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, very, very shortly, the climate and nature agendas are certainly intertwined. Um, and I would then question why the investments in nature are actually only 2%. The, the investments in the climate agenda are only 2%, whereas they provide 30% of the solution. So with the upcoming COP on nature next month, uh, let's use that, that opportunity and bring the nature and climate agenda together because it's, it's an adaptation and a mitigation solution. Wonderful. Well, thank you all so much for joining. Really appreciate it. I know there's so much going on. Hard to boil it down. But really appreciate the perspectives and insights, you know, and then also thank you all very much for listening for any more information, resources, blogs, etc. Please visit the anthesisgroup.com website and uh, for accessing all of that. So thank you again for joining and thanks everybody. Stay well.